There's a bunny hopping, there's monkey swinging. There's all sorts of stuff going on in that little video. It's super exciting, you know, and it's uh, it really brings me back to a time when uh, you and I were uh, hiking, not hiking, we were sitting on backs of horses for animals, uh, taking us through the Andes Mountains. Such a long time ago. Um, our, uh, our Instagram picture. Exactly. Isn't that what we use for the Instagram picture? Exactly. And we were drunk. Um, I smoked a I smoked a Marlboro cigarette on that. I took like two, I thought it would look cool. I took two puffs and I was like, God, no, not for me. <laughs> not for me. I give it back to our friend Dave. Um, but yeah, so this is Jose Gonzalez. We're starting off today. Uh, Jose Gonzalez is a singer songwriter, kind of folk indie singer um, in uh, Sweden. And how does he connect with our topic today? Um, and the stack story of us on horses. Uh, well, his family came from Argentina. They escaped Argentina during the military junta in 1976. Became refugees in Sweden. He was born there. And um, one of my favorite favorite singers. This is from his new album called Local Valley, and this is a song called uh, Valle Local, or Local Valley in Spanish. Um, and obviously, it reminds me of Argentina because he's Argentinian. But it really reminds me of. The rocks and if you listen to the rhythm it's it's not a rhythmic like there is a cadence to the music but the time signature is a little unique and it almost feels like stumbling stones to me it makes me think of the alluvial fan in argentina that's only you would make that connection and then say it and then actually have it make sense as you say it if i had tried to do that everyone would have stopped listening by this point uh, hi everyone <laughs> I, have Adam, to, I have to interrupt real quick. I have to say, you had your eyes closed and squinted when you were saying only you would say that. And I thought you were going to say, you were just trying to contain yourself to say, that was stupid. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 It's just the, you know, it's the, the, normally when you do the, oh, he can, only he can get away with that. Normally it's something that you really shouldn't be saying, like it's risque, it's inappropriate or whatnot. And uh, yeah. how did you get away with that? Or, uh, um, you know, this isn't a bad thing. Like I said what you said and not gotten in trouble for saying it. It's just no one would have taken me seriously and no one would still be listening to the podcast right now. They would have already shut it off. So <laughs> this, this is a podcast. I'm Gonzalo. He's Manny Gonzalez. Remember, he's the expert. Uh, this mm -hmm. is Bottom of the Bottle where we explore, uh, you know, wine a couple bottles at a time. And as, if you, as you gleaned there from Manny's introduction with the music, uh, we are in Argentina today. We have, we have finally decided to give the new world some love, um, which is big for us, I would say, because in general, um, we are Europe snubs. I, it's, yeah, it's a, an apt description for us where, you know, well, we, we will drink almost anything. Uh, if we have our choice, which it's our podcast, so we have, <laughs> we always wind up going back to you know France, Italy, or Spain. So it was um, it was time, it was time to jump. Um, yeah. Though interesting though, where we're in Argentina, you would think we'd be talking Malbec because it's it's Argentina, right? Uh, neither one of us are, are drinking Malbec. I don't have rosé. I have, but I do have bubbles. So um, I'm st still on brand over here. And I'm, I'm double fisting today. 
So I think we need to talk a little bit about Mendoza just because it's such an important area, but mine is a white blend, but I want to focus on Patagonia um, mm. and one of the most amazing Pinot Noirs I've ever, ever had. I think it's actually quite appropriate for us to delve into the new world with Argentina um, before Napa Valley and, and stuff like that, partly because they've been producing wine much longer than they were doing in California. But um, this is also, I would say, this is also really where we developed our friendship, right? Because uh, Adam and I were six years ago, six and a half years ago, we were in Argentina. We both lost our luggage, remember? Our luggage came a couple days later um, and we almost missed our flight. It was a complete, you know, uh, I'm just gonna say complete shit show, like getting there, coming back. They lost, uh, they misspelled my name. Um, because they put a Z at the end of my name on Gonzalez, but it's an S because my family's weird. And they completely erased all of my information on getting there and coming back. So I wasn't sure if I was gonna make it back in the States. But um, this is, we, you know, Adam and I have been working together for years. And this was the trip where we actually got to hang out because I didn't really talk to people very much, I think, when I started at Horizon. I was kind of quiet and shy. Um, I would just come, I would just say weird random crap once in a while. But this is where we actually hung out, became friends. Uh, we enjoyed a lot of Pepsis and Fernet um, as much as possible. <laughs> and we went out to a dance club and we uh, danced with a group of people on your birthday. We did. We did. And that was, and then, uh, that was a fun time. And uh, the next day we went horseback riding. That's right. Yeah, we did not have Fernet and Pepsi because they, they would have murdered us in Argentina if we had done that. Um, we had Fernet and Coke. Let's get it right. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar with the Miami airport, um, it's a horseshoe. If you land over here and you have to connect over here, there's no way to go straight across. You have to go all the way around the horseshoe. That's pretty much what happened. We were at, on one end to the other one. We had to run, you know, because the flight was delayed. Luggage didn't make it. It yeah. made for a good story and allowed for extra Fernet, and extra Fernet is always okay. Why that trip was cool, though, and I was actually my second time to Argentina. I had gone once before a couple of years ago, and both times I went, but especially on that one, um, just it's kind of one of the reasons why we don't have Malbec right now is when we were there, the people we saw. They had beautiful Malbec. We tasted some great Malbec, some geeky Malbec, some all sorts of cool stuff. But the winemakers we met, the local people we met, weren't like geeked up about Malbec. Argentina is not a one-trick pony. The Argentinian section in a liquor store should not just be Malbec only. Um, they do a lot of really cool things and a lot of things really well. And that's what they wanted to talk about. And that's kind of why I think, I mean, we didn't coordinate beforehand. We had already pulled our samples and neither one of us pulled them all back because <laughs> that was experience when we were down there. Why would we do things the easy way for people to understand? We're going to confuse the heck out of people. <laughs> Argentina can be much more confusing than people realize. And, and I think what, you know, when we talk about, Malbec and Mendoza as kind of the cornerstone. And those are all great wines. Um, Mendoza is a huge region. You know, Napa Valley is kind of large, but you can drive Napa in an hour. You can go up the Silverado Trail and you go from, you know, um, 
you know, Coombsville all the way up to, it's the place way up in the top, it's also starts with the C and drawn a blank, I don't know, California. Um, we should know this. We We're should experts. know this. <laughs> Calistoga. Uh, there you go. Yes. Five points, five points, Gryffindor. So, you know, you can, and it's a beautiful drive, but to get from Maipau to Lujan de Cuyo to Valle Uco, the Uco Valley, it's several hours. And I remember when we were there, I was really interested in Patagonia and I was just like, wouldn't it be cool if we can just drive to Palace? I was telling one of the people that took it from the trip, if we can, you know, take a, a detour to Patagonia. And he's like, yeah, that would be a day driving. That'd be a straight day of driving. So no, it's like a four hour flight. I love bringing this up. Sorry, Adam, but when I got to go to Australia and then New Zealand, you know, you think it's really just a hop, skip and a jump, but it was a five hour flight from Australia to New Zealand. You know, it's like going across the country and Argentina is, just, it's such a massive country. I think it's unjust to typecast the country as monovarietal and mono designation because there's so much, so much more in Argentina. Absolutely. And you know, you, you already said with Mendoza, what about the, the size driving wise? Mendoza is to the rest of Argentina as California is to American wine for all intents and purposes. I mean, it, it, the, the ratios are, are that big. Uh, you know, Napa is what, 5%, 5 ish percent of Napa's total production. Mendoza is like, what, 85% of Argentina. If you just take like volume, you know, volume in liters or whatnot, I mean, it's, it's, it's such as big geographically, as far as how much wine they actually produce, it's huge. Yeah. It's the fifth largest wine growing country in the world and consumers of wine in the world. It's really interesting because we do for lots of reasons. When we think Argentina, we think Mendoza, we think Malbec, and that's kind of where it stops, and it, it doesn't have to stop there. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, and it's got a long history. You know, they've been making wine in Argentina longer than they've been making wine in the United States. They obviously weren't making wine like we have today. It was sacramental wine, you know, but the first vines were planted really not long after, you know, the, the Europeans and the conquistadors came um, into the Americas, and then obviously the missionaries came. There are indigenous vines in the United States, you know, uh, there's a few other little subspecies of vines, but um, South America had no indigenous vines at all. So they were all brought in from the missionaries. And really one of the first places that was, well, Mexico, I think was the first place that actually planted vines in the new world. And then they were planting in Peru uh, there were no grapes in Chile. There were no grapes in Argentina. And in 1545, this guy by the name of Don Pedro Vadevilla, um, I had to practice that because I'm just not used to those syllables together. Uh, but he wrote to King Charles X of Spain. Um, once again, not Carlos Charles because they were part of the House of Bourbon uh, in France, bring it back to France whenever I can. And um, on September 4th, he wrote this letter to the King of Spain asking for vines for sacrament. So to, to this day, September 4th in Chile is National Wine Day. Um, but the king didn't send vines from Spain. He sent this random, um, basically mission grape that was called Pais in Spain. It's called Listan Pietro. And they brought this into uh, 
Chile. And then shortly after, it made its way over the Andes Mountains, which, by the way, is not an easy hike. And I'm sure a lot of monks died. Um, but as they died, they were carrying their vines with them because that's the only way they would survive. <laughs> and um, planted in finally in Mendoza. So the history of winemaking is quite long, but it was basic, you know, sacramental wine and, and really not meant for general consumption. Which is interesting because, as you said, but like they drink a lot. <laughs> yes, like they like. And I don't mean that as a negative. Like that they enjoy their wine in Argentina. It's not a perfect comparison, but very, very European in that sense. Where you have wine with your like wine with lunch. Yup. Um, you know your aperitif before you know eating. Yup. Dinner's at nine o'clock because you have to have the, you know, that, that snack in between lunch and dinner at four where you have, you know, your happy hour cocktail and, and charcuterie, whatever. Yep. It's, it's just as interwoven into their culture and their daily life as it is, you know, in, in France, Spain, Italy, you know, and yeah. with having come later, they didn't have the, you said what the 15th century or the 16th century the, when the vine came over, that's yeah. not the first century. That's not 2000 years. I mean, it's still a long time. It's not the 2000 years of tradition that, these other places have the vine so um, for it to catch hold like that it's it's really important to them yeah then it's you know i kind of think of this a lot when it comes to um you know like cuisine in in the new world versus europe you know and a lot of uh french bakers for example who and i think i said this earlier when we talked about burgundy you know they love um you learn the, the canons you learn the laws of baking in France and you learn how to make French bread and everyone makes it the same, but the terroir is the yeast and, and the countertop and your ambient temperature and the water. And then, but you have to make it the same way. And then when you come to the new world, they're like kids in candy stores and they're able to do whatever they want. And so they come up with these really cool creations. And that happened with the wine world because there was a big migration of Europeans, of Italians, um, of Spaniards, of French coming into the new world and they brought with them their tradition of having wine every day. You know, very different than what happened in the United States because the United States were British. And so it, it wasn't even puritanical. It's, they weren't wine cultures. They were beer cultures and cider cultures. Um, and that's what we drank here. And in South America, it was wine. Um, and they brought the wine technique and they brought their varietals with them. Um, I want to jump back real quick on that mission grape that came because I think it ties into quickly two of the wines that we're drinking. It's a pretty floral kind of a simple rustic varietal. And over the years, there were crossings with um, Moscato Alexandra, which is, you know, Moscato. Moscato is one of probably the oldest, it is probably the oldest cultivated varietal. And there's so many different offshoots. And we talked about this with um, Petit Grand Noble and uh, Otanel from Alsace, different factions of Moscat. They create all these different little hybrids um, or different species of the same varietal. And that ended up crossing with this Pais grape, which makes, I think one of the coolest wines when you find a really good one, um, uh, if you like Riesling, if you like good dry Moscato that you might find in Alsace, uh, if you like a Wurzstraminer, 
Torrantes is a pretty awesome white grape. We both have, well, mine's kind of a blend, but we both have some Torrantes in our glass. Yeah, uh, my, mine is a blend as well, because you just said Riesling. So um, I have Amalaya's Brut Nature, because I need my bubbles, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, it's it's made like Prosecco, uh, a Chermont method. Um, so it's it's going to be a little fresher and fruitier than a, a traditional method one that's been laid down for you know a couple of years, but uh, none of that you know no no dosage right no no sugar added after the fact so we're we're kind of the we're getting the flavor profile of that initial you know fermentation that initial juice um, but it's it's riesling and it's tarantes it's eighty twenty riesling and tarantes and it like the aromatics are obscene yeah. It's just you know, just leaping out of the glass. It's it's ridiculous. So your wine is your wine is not Mendoza, correct? Where's your... No, it is Salta. 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 So Salta is um, we're going more north in in Argentina. Uh, we are Salta is a desert, and it is wicked high elevation there's the boston there's the county coming out i say wicked <laughs> so it's only taken i don't know I, you know i, I say shot in every week but i haven't used it a lot um but extreme elevations for for um for cultivating the vine some of the highest thing i think actually the highest vineyard in in the world uh is in salta Dr you know dry 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 amalaya is actually a mo I believe everything they do is from Salta. Uh, and Amalaya actually translates um, from the local dialect in English as hope for a miracle. And the miracle that they are referencing is the fact that they were able to find enough water in this area to cultivate the vine and, and you know, make wine. So it's a cool, uh, it's a really cool area. It, it's, I think it's so interesting about, about the wines in Argentina because oftentimes you know, when we talk about climate and you talk about dry climate or hot climates, you're not talking about wines of high acidity. Oftentimes you're talking about wines that are fruit forward. But because, I mean, I think, well, a couple of different things, you have that altitude, uh, that vineyard, so in, it's called, um, I even wrote it down, <laughs> where did I write it? There it is. Uh, it's called Atura Maxima and it's 10,207 feet above sea level. And it's, I think it's the parent company that, that owns Amalaya, um, Bodega Colome, that owns that. But you know, it's such high altitude. The journal shift between night and day is so intense. Um, and you have you know, the rain shadow that we always talk about in the Andes Mountains. So like the climate in, you oftentimes we put Chile and Argentina in the same bag and you know, kind of makes sense. They're you know, relatively close to each other, but those Andes, really create the climate that you have in Argentina. So you have this like cooling current called the Humboldt Current coming up from like, Antarctica um, that banks off the Andes and creates this kind of relatively warm, temperate, moderate climate in Chile. Um, but the Andes stop all of that from coming into Argentina. And so you have hot, at times very hot, but then very cold. It's a extreme weather patterns and changes um, and super dry. So to me, that produces 
the nice rich fruit that people love when they get their you know eight dollar nine dollar malbec but there's acid to the wine uh there's a freshness to the wine that you know wines i think in california rarely have that you and wines in Argentina or in chile don't have it but the wines in argentina definitely have that and that climate is such an important part you know of what makes the wines the, the that i mean the the trendiest uh, trendy might be the wrong word but the, what we, we we listen to presentations all the time what's everyone do oh we harvest at night we harvest at night we harvest at night we harvest at night we have to preserve the acidities we harvest at night we harvest at night we harvest at night and that's cool i totally so the the I, we talked about this before but um as the grape ripens and with these warm days the acid kind of burns off it, it, it lessens and then as it cools off at night, the, um, the grape starts to, you know, retains acid. It's not burning anything off. I don't know if it produces more per se, but it at least stops the process of getting, you know, of it going away. If it's too hot, the acid just continues to burn off until it's, until it's gone. Um, so all these guys tell you how they harvest at night to preserve acidity. They, it's what they do. And it's, it's cool, but that's also, you know, Mother Nature kind of hinting that, like, hey, if you have to do this, you know, it's it, it's warm. The climate is, doesn't make it so that you can't grow those grapes and ripen them properly, but you have to really pivot and adjust because you you don't have the perfect conditions. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas I mean, this thing like that maybe maybe they are harvesting this at night just because it's not that's a desert and it's not deathly hot and <laughs> that would be brutal to you know ha harvest in that heat. But I mean, the this what I'm I mean what I'm ringing is so vibrant that I I can't imagine this you know if they had to wait six hours and pick this in the middle of the day the next day this would have there'd be any issue with this thing this yeah. is racy as anything. Well, and I think part of it you know is you know at least in my stance with California um, is that you know we buy so much and even in Argentina you know, there's labeling varietals on on the wines oftentimes and there's laws about these we'll go into later but um, oftentimes in California I find that the they're not always planting the right varietals so you know Cabernet is not a Mediterranean, Mediterranean grape it is an Atlantic moderate cool somewhat humid climate uh, Chardonnay is not a Mediterranean or, or a warm climate dry varietal. It is a varietal that needs cooler climate to maintain acidity because it develops so much sugar that it becomes, you know, kind of flabby when you're in warmer climates. And what works really well, because there's some really good Chardonnays in Argentina, there's some really good white wines, there's some really good Cabernets in Argentina. In fact, I prefer Argentinian Cab over Napa Cab and Argentinian Cab over Argentinian Malbec. Um, but because you have that, uh, you know, diurnal shift between daytime extreme weather during this during the harvest season, um, and you have uh, cold nights because of the you know there's there's no ocean or or water source that's regulating the temperature. You get ripe fruit, but you get high acid. Um, and to me, that's I think why people love these wines so much because there's something that's fresh about the wine, it's refreshing, it's not over extracted, um, but you also get that nice ripe fruit that we, that we like, you know. And it can be a difficult, a really challenging place to grow grapes. So like the white that I'm drinking, this is from Susanna Balbo, um, who is, I had her rosé you know, several months ago, but she is 
really one of the most amazing winemakers, super awesome person. And this is her white blend called Brioso. And um, this is a blend of uh, Semillon, mainly Semillon, which is one of the main varietals you find in Sauternes or in white Bordeaux. There's Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, the Semillon is aged, it's fermented in concrete. The Sauvignon Blanc is oak fermented. Um, the Torontes, there's a little bit of Torontes to this, is stainless steel fermented and then it all goes into wooden vat for about five months. And it's so, I, just aromatically, it's explosive. There's a ton of minerality and it's, there's almost this saltiness to the wine. There's a lot of salinity, although, you know, we're nowhere near an ocean, but you know, it's the terroir of the area. So the wine specifically, it's a single vineyard wine and it comes from an area called uh, Valle de Uco, the Uco Valley in Mendoza. Um, these are some of the highest vineyards in, I mean, probably, you know, a good 6,000 feet lower than the vineyards in Salta or 5,000 feet lower than Salta, but you're still around 4,000 feet above sea level. Um, and you have this crazy soil. And what I think was when we were there, the coolest things that, that the winery we were at, um, the agronomist jumped into a hole in into a vineyard and you're asking why is there a hole in the vineyard and he showed the soil he gets out of that hole and he jumps 10 feet over to another hole and the soils are completely different um and those andes mountains didn't just create the rain shadow and make it a dry climate um as glaciers came through and as rivers came through it created what's called an alluvial fan and you can see it when you're looking at the andes it looks I mean, you know it looks you can't see it if you're listening but it looks like a triangle coming down from the top and all the soils sprinkle throughout and so the the, the soil diversity is is incredible um you know the, the alluvial soils you find in in argentina and that helps create these very complex, minerally driven wines that have a ton of fruit. And because the vines really have to dig deep to get any moisture and nutrients, they just become much more complex. I remember that same agronomist, we were, we had gone back to his office or wherever it was, the, that beautiful, you know, brand new winery that had been built from stone they found in the vineyard because you know, they were committed to the terroir of the Yuko Valley. Um, and he's like, you know, you guys are, you're all sitting there like, ah, fossilized, whatever it is. And he just whipped out, like, he goes, look, I just pulled all these out of the ground in the last two weeks. Like, they all, they're, they're all fossilized. Look at them. And that was cool. Like, you're, yeah. you can see the shells and the, the shapes of these, you know, these the sea creatures in the rock. Like, okay, this is, this is not nonsense. This is legit. This is real. We talk about it, but you're, you're holding it in your hand and it came out from the, you know, a hundred feet behind you. Yeah. Um, and that, that, again, that's terroir. And it's, and it is one of those, those things where, you know, you made the joke and I, I when I was licking the rocks last time, uh, which I, I was actually, it, it, yep. not just saying that I was literally licking rocks. Uh, when we were at this winery, you know, there was this giant stone, and, you know, the assistant winemaker was like, you know, if you lick the stone, you'll taste the wines and you'll taste the minerality in the wines. And that's what I did. And then when we went up and we were tasting, it was a Bonarda. I could just taste this like calcium carbonate in the, from the soils right on the top of my palate. I pick it up in this wine too. You know, it has almost like a drying effect. The, the minerality is so intense. It's, it almost feels like tannin, 
but it's right up on the top of the palate, which is basically the soils. Um, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And, you know, in Mendoza, one of the big challenges they have, they have to irrigate, but the irrigation, all the waters come from the Andes Mountains where the soils came from. So they are, are still connected, um, you know, from, you know, cradle to grave or however you want to, you know, think of it. But, um, oh, where is it going with this? Hold on, I'll find it. It kind of went off in a second. Oh yeah, so <laughs> another, another challenge is, um, you know, these, there's a wind called Zonda that comes up from the Andes and it's a really hot, dry, arid wind that comes down. And it happens when it's, it snows in the Andes, it creates this compression and they pummel the vineyards. Um, that you know, has a negative effect because it can dry out your grapes sometimes if it's too hot and there's no relief. Um, if you go through a heat wave, uh, it can also damage vines. But the benefit is that you can also produce organic, sustainable, biodynamic farming in Argentina um, in a much easier way than you can in other parts, like definitely in Chile, which is a little more temperate and climate. There's still great organic producers there, but it's a little more challenging here. They don't have to do any spraying. You know, it's, there's a lot of biodynamic farms. There's a lot of organic farming. Um, and I will say the second wine I have is biodynamic. I've never had a bad biodynamic wine ever may not be my style, but they're always well-made, well-cared-for wines. Even if you don't necessarily buy into the process of biodynamics, which we don't have to get into that, but if you're like, you know, this is all nonsense and witchcraft and whatnot, and the, the fact is, if you're going to farm that way, you need to be really dedicated to your area. And you have to... I mean, you can't half-ass biodynamic farming. So you're going to have a good crop just because of the attention to detail that you have to pay to, to use that process. So even I'm with you. Even if you don't buy into the entire process, that, that person's dedicated to their fruit and it's going to come out well. Yeah. I mean, if you put that much effort into it and it stinks, you're not going to last very long. Exactly. It's, not an easy process. Um, yeah. Just you mentioned irrigation. <clears throat> uh, the first time I went to Argentina, we were I was out in a vineyard somewhere in Luan de Cuyo, I think, and we're in the back of the the vineyard, and there was this big pipe trench trough whatever, that went along the back of the vineyard. You know, it had a spigot on it. And you know, where the gentleman explains to us, like, oh, this is this is how we irrigate. So once every couple of days we turn the spigot on, we flood the vineyard. We're like, oh, so is it, you know, do you drip irrigate? You know, nope, not really. Well, why not? Well, it gets complicated and expensive and blah, blah, blah. And he has this explanation. So wait, so do you, how do you do this? So this, this big pipe, this trench, this trough ran, I don't know how long but it's everyone's vineyards. And it was like the honor system, like when you open your, your spigot to, to flood irrigate your vineyard. And if you did it when you weren't supposed to, or you did too much or whatnot, like it's, 
the middle of nowhere, there's, you know, some dude out there walking around potentially with a hunting rifle <laughs> that, you know, make sure this nigga gets turned off because just in case, because it'd be really easy to steal someone else's water when that's the method, right? It's one big pipe that does everything, but it's um, like, yeah, you know, we wouldn't do that anyway because we, we don't want anyone to do it to us. But just in case, there's a couple dudes that patrol the pipe. So you couldn't, you couldn't like hook up a wacky wiggle and just like jump through a sprinkler, yeah. you know? Nope. That. <laughs> Not happening. Not happening. There was a, there was also that one. There was one. So where we, the entire place was like, the, like there were certain vines depending on where they were, and I was there in the was it harvest time? I want like it was, it was right around harvest. And Wait, around when were harvest? harvest? Oh, oh, harvest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Harvest. That's what I said. Harvest, harvest, all the same thing. Um, and I'll never forget, like, there were vines that were just dead. Like, if it was a, if it was a, a row that did not have any, like, it had a, a one side that was exposed, so there was no kind of shade, the vines weren't helping each other. Uh, I just had one side totally exposed. Like, all the vines were dead. They were just, like, they were shriveled up. They were dead. The, the, the fruit was not usable. Um, and he explained, like, well, you know, if we take this down, it'll just happen to the next row, and then it will just go one more row in. So, yeah, we just deal with one row being. Now, it's just really this unique, um, this unique area. But the, you know, like, every, everything, like, there's no, like, lush green fertile grass, like, floating around in, in the spot. Except for this one little plot where this particular winemaker like liked to sit out and have lunch or whatever it was. Like so he he like painstakingly took this, I don't know, ten by ten patch under a tree and made sure that it was green for when he came out and he he ate. Just just I I'll just know like what that doesn't that doesn't make sense. That's not right. <laughs> Especially when you just told me what happens with water. So, like, what, what, where are you getting the water to make this? Yeah. I like, no. Uh, it's but, like lawns in California. Yeah. Everyone has a green lawn in California, but there's no water. And they're right. on fire. <laughs> Stop with your lawns. You don't even, people don't even sit in their lawns. That's what bothers me. I can go on and on about lawns. People don't even use their lawns. You know, it's strange. You, you, you look at them from afar, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's all about getting those nice, uh, those, those, you know, the, the, the patterns when you mow your lawn, right? With the, the stripes, you know, going in different directions so that your lawn is, you know, nice and manicured. Yeah, yeah. It's important. I like to do my lawn in polka dots, which is nice. Ooh. <laughs> or hexagon. That would be nice. So I want to talk a little bit about, because we haven't done red wine, and we talked about Argentina as being kind of the red wine capital. And the, yeah. state, the state capital. Um, I will say this, and this is no offense to anyone in Argentina. I know you guys are really proud of your meat. Um, it's good. But what I really liked about the food when we were at when we were in Mendoza were the vegetables. Um, we were at one organic winery and they had an organic garden and everything came from the garden. And that was the best food I had in Argentina, um, better than uh, Francis Smallman, um, the steak was okay. His steak was okay. 
And then the night before we were there, they actually did a, some empanadas, which are like fan freaking tabulous and grilled goat. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But the sticks are good. That was really good. The sticks are okay. <laughs> that was really good. So but, quick, just before you yeah. really, really quick, as an aside, that mom and restaurant, the coolest part about that mom and restaurant. Oh, it's the grill. So for, uh, yeah. So where your, our table wasn't ready yet, we're outside. And you're outside, the, the, there's a grill and a, 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 a brick oven or a wood oven or whatever it was, a coal oven. There's all sorts of stuff going on. I'm like, half the kitchen's outside. And you're there. Like, you're looking at the outdoor kitchen. You're, like, in a courtyard surrounded by the kitchen. And Manny just saunters right on over to the, the, the cola. Is like, oh, like, you know, what's going on in there? Sticks his head in the oven to see what's going on. <laughs> they, were throw, they were throwing blood oranges in with the coals. Uh, and burning the skin and the blood, like they were just, do, you know, doing all sorts of cool stuff. But you know, the 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 grill was essentially um, the outdoor grill was a massive wagon wheel on the bottom, and then a smaller wagon wheel like teepeed on top, depending on what they were making. They, you know, whatever grate they used was how they 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 grilled. But just like you're at what you know, it, it's a Francis Mallman restaurant. Where this is one of the world renowned chef, one of the best chefs in the world. You're at his restaurant. And, you know, it's not just a look-in kitchen. Like, we were interacting with people cooking. Yeah. And was there's, there was no, like, there was nothing pretentious. There was no, like, what are you doing? Get away from there or whatnot. Like, no one cared. Imagine trying to, like, imagine trying to walk into the kitchen at your Applebee's, right? Like, you're going to get like, what are you doing? Like, you can't be back here. Like, they're going to lose their mind. Now well, I think I'm doing that. Well, you don't want to see what's happening in the kitchen, you know, at, the, at your local Applebee's. Maybe they do. You know, <laughs> like, let's let's not judge. People like Applebee's. Uh, but, you know, is it like, like you know, French laundry? Can you, you just can't saunter back into that kitchen and see how they're making your, plating your food? Um, yeah. And that's essentially what we were doing while waiting for our table was just, you know, walking around their kitchen, looking at stuff. It was awesome. Yeah, it was it was a great trip. I, it's funny because I was full by the first lunch we had um, at the hotel. I, I was full, and uh, we just kept eating continually for <laughs> the rest of the week. Yeah. The best dish I had at that restaurant uh, was actually the pizza. They had this little pizza that they made, um, and it had those blood oranges that they were basically roasting in the coals. Um, and it's a trick that I do here at the house now. Like I like put them on the grill or put them in the oven and they're like warm. It's super awesome. Um, awesome. but the wine that I'm drinking <laughs> is not recommended with steak. Um, this is, so I'm drinking as my second wine cause, uh, I'm a glutton. Uh, this is a wine called Barda. This is from Bodega Chakra and this is from Patagonia. Patagonia doesn't just make really cool sweaters. They also make great wine. Um, this is an area called Rio Negro. Um, and it's a unique, first of all, I mean, the whole story is unique. So um, I'll tell you about the winemaker first and then how we found this place. So uh, the guy's name is Piero Anchela de la Roqueta. Uh, his grandfather was from Piemonte loved the wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy, but moved to Tuscany and created the winery Sasakaya. Um, so he came from a winemaking family, had no interest in making wine, 
Uh, his mother opened a property in Umbria called Salviano uh, that he worked there for a while with her. Then he went to college in California and decided, you know what, maybe I'm going to make wine. And he wanted to go to Burgundy, but Burgundy is such a closed area. It's really hard to start a winery today in Burgundy. Uh, there's not, there's no more vineyards, basically. Um, and so you have to kind of go to the outskirts and then you're no longer really at the heart of Burgundy. So he was like, well, maybe California. There's some cool things happening. Once again, going back to the Baker theory, you have this old world structure, tradition, know-how and how to make wine, but now you're free to blend in whatever you want and, and do something fun and different. And he was at a blind tasting in New York City and he was tasting this wine that was obviously Pinot Noir and he was dead set that this was the most unique wine he ever had. And he felt like he was like Jeffrey Chambertin or, or, or Nuit Saint-Georges and he couldn't figure out what it was. And when he saw the, the wine, it was a wine from Patagonia, Argentina. He'd never been to Argentina. He was like, wow, this is incredible. So because, you know, he's winemaking royalty, he gets on a plane and goes to Argentina and falls in love with these two specific vineyards. One is called Trente Dos, just 33 or 32 in Spanish, rather, and Cincuenta uh, Cinco, 55. These vineyards were named after the years they were planted and they were planted to Pinot Noir. So he found, I mean, at this point, now it's 2001, I mean, they're 90, almost 90 year old Pinot Noir vines, not grafted, just basically take your twigs of Pinot and stick them in the ground, they create vines. Um, so these are really old vine Pinot Noirs. And he's like, this is incredible. These are amazing vineyards. And they don't produce a lot of fruit, they're very small berries, but what they produce is really concentrated. And so he came up with this winery, Bodega Chakra. Uh, they are located in um, this area of Patagonia called Rio Negro. Now this is a dried riverbed basically from the Andes Mountains. Um, and that's where all these vineyards are. So it's mostly 20 year old vine Pinot, plus some select fruit from these older vineyards. Um, he's producing this organically, but it's also biodynamic. So we talked about biodynamic a moment ago. Biodynamics are, a, it's basically a holistic way of making wine. So the analogy I like to use, if you um, sprain your wrist, you might not go hiking tomorrow morning because you need to heal your whole body. And so the idea behind biodynamics is when one part of your vineyard or your farm is infected, um, you treat everything. Uh, so, and it's a lot of preventative, um, measures in terms of winemaking, it's preventative medicine, basically, rather than reactionary, which is what we do here. Um, it is, uh, there is some voodoo witchcraft to it. You know, they'll take manure, they put it in cow horns, they bury it in the ground uh, during the um, fall, they dig it out in the spring, and it's this highly concentrated fertilizer that they spray on the vineyards. They do the same with quartz, that becomes ground up and they spray it in the vineyards and it helps refract light. Um, it's a real cool method of making wine. So this is 100% Pinot Noir. And on the label, when you're looking at a label of wine from Argentina and you see single varietal, both of our, our initial wines are blends. Pinot Noir has to be at least 85% Pinot. Uh, this is 100% Pinot Noir, all estate fruit um, and spends a very short time in oak around uh, 10 months. What I love about the wine is that every vintage is different. Um, I've had this wine blind and I thought it was Nuit Saint-Georges. I've had the next year the wine blind and it was like there was something kind of almost Piemontese about it. There was this like rustic kind of minerally kind of 
um, copper thing going on. Um, you know, and then now this vintage has almost like a this natural wine kind of reduced uh, sweet balsamic floral aroma to it. Um, it's such a cool wine and it's a cult wine. People look for each vintage because each vintage like Zinumbrecht, each vintage of those wines are completely, completely different. You know, but in terms of general climate, it's still dry. It's much cooler though. Like we really don't see temperatures above 90 degrees here. Um, so it's, it's a little more moderate, dry, and they get more sunshine than they get in Mendoza because Mendoza is right up against, or in, in Salta, those are right up against the Andes. Here we're in the foothills. Uh, we're in the southern, like the southern part of the Andes where they, they get smaller as they go down to the, the Atlantic or, or by what's Cape Horn where, um, where they meet. But um, so you get more hang time on the vine, you get more evening ripening because of the sun and it makes a truly magical wine. And once again, I'm really sad that I'm not sharing this with you, but it's okay because I'm going to enjoy it tonight, which is yeah. why I'm quoting <laughs> Yeah, you get to enjoy more of it than if than if you share it with me. Uh, it, it's, I mean, we get to sell a lot of good wine, right? I mean, where we have a lot of good stuff that we can sell. That's probably that's one of my you know five or six favorite wines in the book. Mm -hmm. That Pinot, it's just it's spectacular every year. It's awesome. Um, it's just yeah, it's just really good. And I, I like it to the initial reason I, I pulled it the first time, um, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was that I pulled it, was I was like, how do you make wine in Patagonia? Penguins live there. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know, like what, what, what's the penguin terroir to, to, to this Pinot? And uh, that's why I pulled it. And I was like, holy. Like, Wait, did you say penguin? I, yeah, penguin terroir. Well, they probably use, you know, penguin poop to, to help uh, compost. You know, like it, it just, it's it, at the time, it was just like, you can't make wine where like penguins are hanging out. That doesn't make sense to me because uh, <laughs> I was in, because I was an idiot and, you know, cared more you about know, like, penguins at the time. It, yeah, yeah. Like it's a big, it's such a big region too. But it's, um, I, again, like it just, it, that, that wine is, is stunning. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. It's um, and I mean, one of the challenges here in Patagonia, you don't see a lot of them in the market. Um, it's only about 5,000, I think, acres planted. So it's roughly the size of like the, the Jura um, in terms of, of acreage planted. There used to be 30,000 acres, but um, I think people started pulling up the roots and just planting other vegetables there. Um, yeah. And there's, so there's not a lot of winemakers. And I was listening to an, an interview with Piero yesterday on YouTube and you know, he was basically saying the challenge in here and I said this last time we were talking about old world versus new world when you're in old world you know you have this whole culture of winemakers that you're tasting with and and you're in a, a gentlemanly way competing with you know that you you want to make the best wine you possibly can and you try your competitors to see where it stacks up and and oh they're making great wine how do I make my wine more like that um, they don't really have that here. Where Mendoza, there's, you know, you, we see it in the shelves when we walk down the Argentinian section. A bazillion producers making Malbec. 
there are not a lot of producers in Patagonia. Um, and so it hasn't quite developed that culture of, you know, competition, mm-hmm. you know, that friendly competition that like Frescobaldi does where he sits with his friends and they blind taste and they want to make the best wine. You know, they, they're not there yet, but what he does is amazing. And quality wise, I mean, price point wise, I mean, you're looking at a wine that retails around 30 bucks. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, I would put this next to any new world Pinot and actually did an event last night where I had this next to a Burgundy. Um, and uh, it is a different animal. It's a different terroir. It's a different uh, style of Pinot, but it definitely holds its own in terms of quality, texture, I think just absolute beauty. What you just said about, you know, Argentina not, or Patagonia not being there yet as far as the the friendly competition, the camaraderie, and so on. It, I think we can, in general, we can map that out over the entire winemaking country to, to pivot here for a minute. Um, and this is more outside of Argentina as opposed to internally. Inside of Argentina, they know what they do. They know what they like. They know what's good. Said I'm I'm drinking you know Shamat method sparkling wine right because they make loads of sparkling wine in Argentina they just don't export it they drink it themselves um, there's you know they they know it they understand their country and what they're drinking and so on come to a what they haven't done a great job with in my opinion is selling all those intricacies to the broad market outside of Argentina. And this is where I think the confusion lies in, in America. Um, you know, Malbec exploded on the scene 15-ish years ago. And it was all about, you know, oh, Mendoza, Mendoza, Mendoza. Well, if you, you know, that, well, not just, if, even if we do it, if we walk into a, a liquor store and go to the, the wine section and, and go to Argentina, and everyone, every label just says Mendoza, but we don't know the producer. There's some $8 ones, some $15 ones. There could be a $100 one. There's no, it's, unless you know who made it, like what, what's, what's the difference between these three wines? I mean, clearly the $100 one should be better, right? Because it's a hundred bucks. You would think that it would be, but what, what's the real difference? How am I supposed to figure this out? Um, and then as they're trying now to highlight that terroir, we talked about Uco Valley. Uco Valley is a big deal. It's one of the, the best regions they have. It's, it's unique. It's different. The wines are gorgeous. Luyan de Cuyo, uh, La Rioja, all, you know, Salta, Patagonia, all these places are important and unique and make gorgeous wines in different styles that speak to many things that Americans like to drink. And yet it hasn't yet kind of translated yeah. outside of that Mendoza uh, Malbec. And it's, it, it, it is, you know, I mean, if, if you're listening and you, you didn't know they made wine in Patagonia, you're, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who don't know they make wine in Patagonia. Uh, the, the, the confusion with Argentina is different than the confusion with France or the confusion with Italy 
you've probably heard of the places in Italy or France that make the wine. You might not know what it is or recognize it or know if it's good or not, but you've heard Burgundy, you've heard Chianti, you've heard Barolo, you've heard, you know, um, you've heard Bordeaux and, and so on. The, so you hear Burgundy, you know, you think quality. You hear Bordeaux, you think quality. You hear Chianti, you think of certain things. Um, you hear Patagonia, you, you, you don't think anything. Yeah, and think, that's Argentina's next step. You think of sweaters and hiking gear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Patagonia. Yeah, and I, you know, I think this all ties back into um, you know, this kind of concept of, of terroir. Like, why do we, you know, why do we, you and I, drink wine? Yeah. And um, it's not just that wines, you know, tasty or whatever, because I never really liked it. I didn't come from one family. Um, but I've found over the years and working in restaurants and now working within, you know, what we do now, that you're, you can travel when you, um, when you find wine from other countries and you find quality wines from other countries. Um, and sometimes when you're traveling in real life, you don't really know what that neighborhood's like or what that city's like. You just got to go into that city. And sometimes it's not necessarily where you want to be. And uh, you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to go there again. But sometimes you find some amazing statue or some field or, you know, a family that takes you in and feeds you. And, and wine can do the same thing when you're shopping that shelf and you're looking at Malbec and you're looking, wow, I, I, I can count on it all the time. Well, that's like traveling to, to the same or traveling to, to Europe and only going to the McDonald's because you know it, you know, and I'm not comparing those Malbecs to McDonald's. Some of them are like that some of them are not but it's the safe bet i know I'm, i can count on it so i'm just going to go here um and that's also okay you're having a big party yeah get what you know get the inexpensive malbec that you know um but you want to try something else you're grilling something at uh um you know home or your you whatever pizza night and you want to try something different shop that shelf in argentina or in chile or you know um and look for the varietal Bonarda. What's that? Um, I've never had a Cabernet Franc from Argentina or a Cabernet Sauvignon from Argentina. I've only known Malbec, and Malbec was brought in, in in the 19th century, so it's not even like it's been there for hundreds of years. Um, you know, try some of these different areas because it's like traveling to a different part of the country, traveling to a different village, and um, you know. Drink as a local drink, and and do that in your glass. And if you if you go to, actually, it doesn't even matter the size of the store. You can, if you go to a play, uh, uh, if you shop somewhere where you feel there's someone who can speak cogently about wine, right? So whether it's the uh, manager or someone on the floor, you, you know someone who works at the store or the shop that likes wine and has either helped you before, you've heard them help somebody else, you know, it's, they, they ask because you want to, like, you, you know, it, it's okay to not understand the entire wine room. You're not supposed to understand the entire wine room. Like that, 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 that's okay. Um, just ask the, like, hey, you know, like, I want to try something different tonight. I tend to drink, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I like, I like, you know, fruit, you know, uh, kind of rich fruit wines, but that have a little backbone to them. So, I, you know, I'm having it with dinner. So, you know, they might grab you that, 
Argentinian cab that you never would have grabbed before because you haven't gone there. Um, you know, if you if you say you like, um, you know, if you like Alsatian wines or, you know, you like Rieslings or, you know, they might grab you at Tarantes. Tarantes are full and rich and spicy and they can be sweet. And there, there's, if there's someone you trust, like, you know, try something, ask. Um, it, it, it never hurts to ask. And yeah. it, it, because in a lot of these places, and this, this is the, and it's not everywhere, but in many places, that wine is on that spot on the shelf for a reason. A, a re, I almost said Riesling. I said, I said Riesling. <laughs> I was thinking Riesling. Um, for a reason. Someone tried it and thought it was really good or, you know, it was uh, from a spot in the world that we should need. There's a, those wines are there in that set for a purpose. And they're, there's a couple that, you know, they might not be your speed. They, you know, it, it might not be your thing, but it's not bad. Um, so find that person that you trust, tell them what you like, they'll give you something new. And, you know, then it's, then you can start figuring stuff out on your own. Okay. Well, I know I like this. I tried this. I like it. I want to see what this is now. Uh, when, yeah. when we were in Argentina and it was the coolest experience we had, you know, the, the, it was a family winery, the second generation or third, as a second generation, you know, son had taken over making the wine and he walks us through all the, you know, everything he does. And it was cool. He was great, really personable. Uh, but as we, were, as we were sitting down for, for lunch, we noticed there was a red sparkling wine in the shop. And I think it was you actually who, who you know, mentioned to, to him, hey, what, you know, what's that? Just, I, I, I don't, like, what is that? The face lit up, the eyes lit up, totally geeked out. Oh, that's. That's the sparkling banana I make with my, you know, with my friends and goes at whips out four bottles, comes out, you know, just starts and sits down with us in the, you know, relaxed setting and just excited to explain this, this wine. Now, in, in this instance, he, he made the wine, right? So there's a, there's an additional sense of passion there. But I mean, listen to the way Manny and I talk, talk about some of the stuff that we're drinking, like if you find someone in a store that just drank something that they really liked and they recommend it to you, they're going to be really excited to give it to you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like they want you to ask that question. Exactly. When you, when you find, you know, when you turn someone onto a wine that you like, that you know it's, you kind of need to get someone into, that they're not just going to grab it, that people aren't just going to grab. And I tell them when I go into stores and I sell the Barda, I tell them, don't put this in South America. Put it with Pinot Noir. You know? And that's how you're, that's how you're going to move it. And, um, but when you are able to have that conversation with somebody and take them on that journey, it is, it's such an enriching experience. Uh, for me, it's an, it's an enriching experience to talk about this stuff and it's exciting and to get someone to get it and look at it and look at what like a wine like this or what you're drinking or, or any awesome cool wine that needs to be talked about. You know, the whole idea, I said earlier, it's to travel and then you travel in that glass and to take someone on that, that voyage is, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's a pretty rad yeah. feeling. Oh, it's fantastic. I'm so, right now. so now I'm, I'm curious because um, I picked 
Argentina. Um, where should we go? That doesn't involve Rosé. Damn it. <laughs> Oh, I'm so predictable. <laughs> um, let's hmm, let's stay in the new world, okay? Because we just we've been you know until today we've been we've been ignored. Um, where can we go in the new world that would be fun? That's not California, because I think you and I both have to prepare ourselves for that. And that's not a knock on California. That's just that, that's a knock on us. <laughs> um, you know, let's um, go back and forth and all this stuff. Let's go. Let's go to New Zealand. New Zealand? Let's go to New right. Zealand. I, I've been there. I can talk about New Zealand. I know. I know. Okay. I, I just, I, I'm going to give you an hour to just, you know, remind me of things that I didn't experience <laughs> because you got to go instead of me. But, uh, but again, I just, just the way my mind thinks, um, initially you think New Zealand, you think Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I don't even have to ask. You're probably not going to pull one. I already know what I want to pull. It's not a Sauvignon Blanc. So <laughs> it's the spelling myths. Again, there's there's more to Argentina than Malbec. There's more to New Zealand than Sauvignon Blanc. So it'll be fun to see what we grab. Should we keep it a surprise? Yeah. All right. Maybe um, what if we grab the same wine? Let's grab two just in case. We won't, we, we won't <laughs> grab two. We, we, we won't grab two of the. Uh, we won't do that. <laughs> awesome yeah let's let's go to uh let's go to new zealand nice great, great place some great people there um all right awesome well let's lead up with a little more of the local valley from jose gonzalez and uh until next time everyone cheers cheers this wine is so freaking good awesome so um I, I purposely did not embarrass you when you said that, you know, they, they spelled your name wrong. You approved the misspelling of your name in an email. So, yeah. you can blame them all of you, but we got an email saying, can you please verify that all this information is correct? And you said yes with the Z. <laughs> I'm just so used to seeing it that I, I used to work at this grocery store when I was in high school. And there was a guy that called me Mario. And I wasn't going to burst his bubble, I just responded to Mario. So I hear over the loudspeaker, Mario, clean up on aisle five, and I go clean it up, and one of the cashiers is like, and I'm like, I'm just so happy to have a job right now that I'm going to make money. I'm not going to jinx it. So.